0: Now, Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. Bonjour et bienvenue, or as I like to say, welcome to a Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. I, of course, am Mitch Lafon. It's amazing how that works out. And of course, I'm here to talk rock with you. And who better to talk rock with than somebody from the original White Snake band? And that is none other than guitarist Bernie Marsden. He's got uh, two books currently out on the market, Uh, Where's My Guitar, an inside story of British rock and roll, and and Tales of Tone and Volume. Uh, One is a memoir, the other being his guitar collection. Both fascinating, both uh, recommended uh, reading purchases, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, um, here's the thing, and you might have noticed with the uh, title, it says Bernie Marsden Part 1. Okay, Well here's why. Uh, We did about 75 minutes total of interview that day but this first part about 20 minutes in the phone connection died. Just gone. And so I decided instead of trying to stitch this together magically I'm going to do Bernie this week and I'm going to have Bernie next week. Therefore I'm going to stretch out the awesomeness that is uh, Bernie Marsden. And so at the 20 minute mark plus plus or whatever the talk-up time I'm doing here, the interview just is going to stop abruptly. Just gone. Mid-sentence. Don't worry. Your phone is not broken. Your podcast provider is not screwing you over. You're fine. But, but, it will be exceptionally abrupt. And, you know, so be it. Uh, So I just want to warn you up front that he'll be mid-sentence telling you a great story about White Snake and Europe and the whole thing, not the band, but the the continent, and then just, oh, oh, bye-bye. Ah, don't be frustrated. Uh, I could have, of course, stitched together part one and part two and done a 75-minute episode, but you know what? I like these shorter episodes, so you'll get this one that's going to be about 20, 25 minutes, and you'll get the next one that'll be the extra 45 minutes or so. It'll be perfectly fine, and you'll have Bernie today, and you'll have Bernie next week. Anyway, uh, do check out BernieMarsden.com. You can pick up both books in a variety of configurations. Signed, not signed, deluxe edition, not deluxe edition, with this, with that. Have at it, BernieMarsden.com. And quickly, a, a shout-out to guitarist Joe Bonamassa. Uh, during the interview, if you uh, listen to the interview with Joe he said, oh, I'm working with, with Bernie Marsden. And I went, Bernie Marsden from Whitesnake? He's like, yeah, 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 Bernie Marsden from Whitesnake. Uh, who else is there? Who, t- t- are there five or six Bernie Marsdens walking around? Um, and I said, oh, there's a bucket list interview for me. And he said, okay, I'll take care of it. And, you know, you've done this. I've done this. You say to somebody, yeah, yeah I'll do And then you just never do it. And literally, literally, 20 minutes after I got off the phone with Joe, I got an email from Bernie saying, hey, my buddy Joe says you'd like to do an interview. And I was like, "Well, would you look at that? Hey, yeah. Hallelujah. Yes, I'm in. Anyway, uh, so a big, 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 big thank you to uh, Bernie Marsden and Joe Bonamassa for, you know, agreeing to do this and getting him to do this. So a big thank you to both guys. And so here, without further ado, is part one, truncated, (laughs) cut off, uh, mid-sentence of Bernie Marsden. Please tune back in next week for part two. Uh, And uh, well, on three, two, one, here is Bernie Marsden. We're speaking with legendary guitarist Bernie Marsden. He has a new book, of course, Where's My Guitar? An inside story of British rock and roll, which comes on the heels of Tales of Tone and Volume, two books definitely worth checking out. And uh, as we say in Montreal, bonjour Bernie. How are you?
1: Bonjour. I'm very well, thank you, here in the uh, leafy lanes of England. Good, I'm good.
0: Good. Pl- pleasure to talk to you. So I, so I was telling you just before we got started, I have been trying to set up an interview for many many years. I am a a, a die hard White Snake fan. I've interviewed David. I've interviewed everybody else in the band, whether it's M- Marco Mendoza or or or, or uh, you know Doug Aldrich and stuff. And I've always said, okay, I got to get myself down to 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 Bernie because that's that's the era, you know. When you when you listen back to me and I listen to Ready and Willing and you listen to Saints and Sinners, there was a magic that was there. Not that the stuff after wasn't magical, but I don't know. There was just this, just this something. Uh, but we'll we'll get into all of that after. Let, let me get started with this. Uh, we are speaking today, very very much thanks to Joe Bonamassa. I interviewed Joe recently. He mentioned Bernie Marsden. I said, "Oh my God, that's a that's a bucket list interview." Next thing you know, he's texting me. You're emailing, and here we are. So uh, kudos <laughs> kudos to Joe. Um, but
1: that's what friends are.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's what friends are for. Sorry, sorry, I'm I'm too excited. Yeah. I'm cutting you off. But um, oh, that's all. But uh, let's get started with that, because uh, other than this, that story, you and Joe have uh, been on stage many times as guest appearances and so on and so forth. The cruise, the the Joe Bonamassa cruise. But now he's got this album uh, from Abbey Road coming out and he called you up and said, I need that British sensibility Help me out. So talk to me about working with, with Joe in general, but also specifically on this upcoming album.
1: Well, first off, I, Joe and I have known each other for 10 years. I was invited to his concert at the Albert Hall uh, in 2009, I think it was. And uh, that's the one where Eric Clapton showed up, three or four songs in. Everybody was like, whoa, what's this? You know. And um, I was going to say thank you for the gig afterwards because I was invited by the record company. And I, there was a load of people backstage. I was fortunate enough to have a, a backstage pass. And uh, I thought, well, just before I leave, I'll go say thank you. And I enjoyed the show. So I waited for a bit of a gap. And I saw many people around him, of course. And I walked towards him about two or three meters, about to say, oh, my name is. And I enjoyed the show. And he said, you don't, I know exactly who you are. He said, thank you for coming. So that was a nice beginning, you know. And... We stayed in touch after that. I got to play with him a few times. And then he recorded a song I'd written for a solo album called Place in My Heart, which was really cool version of it. And when we got to talk, when we were sitting down on a bus or whatever and just talking in guitar terms really, you know, obviously my my past connections with people that he'd grown up with and never had the chance to see, we got talking guitars and then we realised of course how much we had in common other than just being guitar players. So that was how it began, really. And it it then transpired that I got to play with him at various gigs, and we would meet up every time he came to England, sometimes abroad. And the friendship began. And then when he came in last year, beginning of last, this time last year, really, he said, look, I'm going to go do an album at Abbey Road, and uh, I'd like to do some writing with you. So I said, well, that's great, no problem. But I didn't expect to be writing kind of the majority of the album with him i thought if we do two or three songs that'd be great but there's rather than that and it was a really good working relationship you know and um, we remain first and foremost good friends but the working relationship now i think will develop even further
0: yeah and and i'm looking forward to it so okay so here's my challenge interviewing somebody like bernie marza and by the way uh just wanted to mention uh joe of course Tried out for UFO and you were in UFO, so that was a that's a fun connection. But here's the <laughs> right here's the problem uh, trying to interview you is that there is so much to cover, uh, so much ground that I, I it's sort of hard to figure out where we start and 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 where where to go. But let, let us start with the book. Where's my guitar? Uh, an inside story of British rock and roll. You are you are very open in this one, right? Not to be not to coin a pun, but it's an open book you you talk yeah. about everything and of course the white snake situation and all that. Uh, what sort of motivated you at this point to say okay, we're going to do a memoir. We're going to be honest, at least my version of of the truth, my version of honesty. Yeah. Uh, what compels you to do that and, and do you worry about relationships? Do you re- worry that Dave is going to read that and go, "Oh, come on now." H- how do you sort of balance putting out the story and Looking around at the relationships.
1: Good question. I, I think what what happened was I, I started to write the book, which turned into what became the book. I wanted I had two growing up uh, daughters and I wanted to write down because by that time I was into my you know way into my forties, and I thought, well, you know, you never know what's going to happen. I'm on, I'm on the road, this this could happen, that could happen, and they don't really know what their dad did. You know, they can read articles they can play records but there's a lot more to it than that so i started to write down stuff and i realized a it was pretty easy to do in in a in a nice way it wasn't hard work my memory proved to be pretty good and also with the advent obviously of uh, google i could check stuff where and i might get a month mixed up or i might get a year mixed up but then i could suddenly tie in ufo and say oh no that was 73 oh it turns out no it was 72 so that made it easier By the time I'd done probably a couple of hundred pages, maybe a bit more, I then did send it to a friend of mine who's written some very fine books on Eric Clapton and um, Jack Bruce. Uh, He's written a Gary Moore book. The guy's name is Harry Shapiro, and he's a recognized, you know, proper writer. So I thought, well, rather than get into this anymore, I'm going to send it to Harry. And Harry will say, you know, Harry being the guy that he is, will say to me, well, you know, just stick to playing the guitar, Bernie, you know? And I thought he would... Wouldn't bother to read it for a while. Anyway, a couple of days later, he called me back and said, this is really good. I said, is it? And he said, yes, it is. He said, there's a few things he gave me some advice on and, you know, did this and that. And suddenly then it became viable to do the whole thing. So we crowdfunded it at first for the first edition, which was about 2017, I think. And uh, then I was approached by the mighty HarperCollins company. Uh, with their Division 4th estate, uh, to redo it last year. And so we rejigged it, found some different photographs, and done some editing, added some stuff, and that's the version that you, you have there, I think, now. So that's how it all came to, came about.
0: Yeah, and it's it's an incredible, incredible version. Then we'll quickly mention the other book, and then I want to start getting into a little bit of the past. Uh, Tales of Tone and Volume comes with a, a deluxe edition, comes with a CD. Talk to me yeah. about about that book, but also... Where does this thrill of guitar collecting come from? I mean, you know, I look at a guitar and, and it's a guitar, but uh-huh. I'm a mad collector of CDs. I mean, uh, you know, when I collect, for example, Whitesnake, I have everything you've ever done, everything that's yeah. connected. I mean, I've got Company of Snakes, I've got M3, I've got uh and about uh-huh. time to so, so I understand the passion for collecting, but how does that how does that develop in a young bernie marsden when he's whatever 10 years old
1: it was a uh, really a financial thing because none of us were so clever none of us were clever enough in the 70s to realize that if you paid a hundred dollars or a hundred pounds whatever for a guitar then it would be worth ten thousand pounds now so what we used to do especially when i was in america in the early days or what wherever in, in a way even it could even be in the uk if a guitar became up for sale you would buy. I would buy kind of two or three, sell two on to supplement my income and keep the one I really liked. So the collecting thing didn't really start off as a collecting thing. It started off as a financial assistance and then having a couple of decent spare guitars. But then there would come a time when that spare guitar financially had to go as well. So that one would go as well. After that, when you got a chance to say, people were starting to say, you know, these are going to become rare. This is going to become very hard to find. All guitar players I know who can or could do it started to put them away. It wasn't so much a collection. you know. And when I moved to London at first, I lived in an apartment block which had uh, the motorhead guitar player above me, I think he was, and a guy from Barclay James Harvest. But in the basement of the building where I was was Mick Relfs from Bad Company. And Mick was one of the first and early guys to really be into... Should we say, collecting vintage guitars. So Mick was a big influence on me. And then when I joined Wild Turkey, Glenn Cornick uh, was very, very knowledgeable about these things. And he'd say to me, well, why don't you try Firebird? Why don't you try one of these? Et cetera, et cetera. So when we were on the road, he would say, well, you should buy that. That's only 100 quid. You know, if you've got a spare 100 quid, I might say, well, yeah, probably. So I would put it away. That's how it's been done, really. It's a—I I always call it a chronic disease with guitar players. It's—it's—it's um, it's, it's not curable.
0: No, it, it really isn't. I mean, uh, all the guitar players that I know, uh, including Brad Gillis and all that, they all have to collect. It, it is a, yeah. like you said, it's—it's it's a disease. Um, let me—I'm uh, going to jump uh, jump around a little bit, but uh, when you look back on the history of great guitar duos you know, we think of Thin Lizzy, we think of Joe Perry and Brad Whitford, we think of all these bands, but sometimes I feel the Mickey Moody, Bernie Marsden combination gets overlooked. So before we start talking about the past, talk to me about that combination. What was it about Mickey and Bernie that just worked? How did you sort of figure these things out and, and how did it lock in and Listen. Obviously, after that, you did Mickey uh, the the um, uh, Moody Marsden. You did all this other stuff together. What is yeah. it about him?
1: Well, the, the thing was, we knew each other before White uh, uh Mickey had been in bands more or less uh, the same time as me. Well, a bit longer than me. He he moved from the north of England, I think, in nineteen sixty nine or maybe seventy, and uh, he moved down to London then. Whereas I was still up in the countryside. I moved to London probably late seventy one, something like that, and. Um, we just knew each other because of the bands we'd been in, etc. And we had an understanding which wasn't—we didn't really talk about. It. We just got on with it, you know. Uh, one of those um, cosy Powell expressions, you know, was uh, just—you know—just get on with it, kind of thing. It's a very English thing, you know. You don't 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 try and make make a pattern of something when the obvious way to do it is is there. We had a bit of with Whitesnake. We had a, a a collective: David, Mickey, and I, basically david had come out of that purple thing <clears throat> well that purple thing I, I make that sounds quite small don't i uh, but there've been all the ego problems between you know guitar players and singers and whatever with Rishi and and with tommy bowling the problems that they have with tommy and the, you know the demise of deep purple which i know quite a lot about because i work with those guys closely and it was obvious that there'd been a big battle of wills, you know, from the guitar players and, you know, with the rest of the band and stuff. And I'd never been really like that. I had some of those issues, you know, early on with UFO and stuff like that, but never to the point. And, none, and neither Mickey or I was ever interested in being, um, you know, the next great guitar God, you know, but what we did both, we were both totally interested in was being in a good band and writing good songs. And then when you come along and have the, one of the greatest vocalists you could possibly ever work with, the, the whole thing made sense. Usually if we wrote the songs together, uh, if it was basically a Mickey song or basically my song or whatever, then guitar solo-wise, we would defer to each other on that. But even that changed. I and mean, when we did Love Hunter, I played the original guitar solo on um, the Leon Russell song. Um, what's it called? Um, I can't remember now. Um I can't remember. You might. You can find oh, that one. Yeah, out, but, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, help me yeah. through the day. Help me through the day. Sorry, should I say that again, for you? So, <laughs> I knew I'd done a decent solo on it, and I could see in the studio. You know, Mickey was like, "Well," then he said, "You know, would you would you be a fan to do five?" I said, "No, not at all." And he put it down. And Martin Birch was producing there. Martin had worked with Peter Green and stuff, so he knew his stuff guitar wise, obviously. And um, the solo came on, and I just said, "That's the one." Uh, oddly enough, I've heard only in the last year or so I found the uh, the original solo and it, it it isn't actually very, you know, it's not half bad, but the solo that's on there is better. So that worked out pretty well, you know, so there was never a matter of, oh no I'm doing this, because I was the one who kind of wanted to do that song, because after Ain't No Love in the Heart of the City, you know I wanted to do another feature for David and so that was why I came up with Help Me Through the Day So, you know to To find another Freddie King tune that we could do properly, so to speak, or Bobby Bland or whatever. You know, it was it was good, but that was the relationship we had and we kind of followed that and I think what we also gave to the, once we became popular on stage, there was a believability of a bunch of guitar players in the audience who said, you know what, I think I could do that. You know, maybe they couldn't, but we never tried to be, you know, guitar hist- histrionics. It was a, a just honest to goodness guitar playing and, and harmony stuff or unison stuff or then just a damn fine solo whether it was a slide solo or me doing the solo in Mistreated which I never had any, people say oh, you must have been under a lot of pressure you know doing the Blackmore thing and I didn't I never did I I, I just heard it as a good blues song to to play over so there was never an, an issue with that we understood each other we never tried to there was always a healthy respect for each other on stage. And that that continued, and you know, you know, maybe we we worked together too long afterwards. You know, maybe we did too many too many things because we we should have maybe left it alone at some point. But that's that's a different that's a different aspect. But uh, you know, it's one of those things within the band we wanted to do to the best detriment of of, of Snake, and I think we pretty much stayed close to that. It's kind of a long winded answer, but. You got most of the truth
0: there. I got most of the truth, and and listen, <laughs> I I don't think you uh, you you overstayed your welcome. I I think Company of Snakes M three uh, or the other stuff that that uh, Mickey did was all very much uh, worthy. So there you go. Um, well, well, see the M three
1: thing. Just while we're on that, uh, finish, yes. Because <clears throat> by by the time M three was running, it was a it was a better band musically than uh, uh, Company of Snakes was because we had uh, a different approach to it. But M3 only played Whitesnake. But because of that, every poster said Whitesnake in like, you know, seven-inch letters, and then M3 in one one-and-a-half-inch letters on the poster. So anybody driving past would see Whitesnake playing in some town hall in the middle of Bavaria, and they say, well, surely they're not playing. Them. Well, no, we weren't. It was us. The po- promoters being promoters... Would jump on the White Snake fact, so they would have three ex White Snake people in big letters. And I started, you know, the internet was there, and of course, you know, you don't want to deceive people or make people think that you're trying to be White Snake. We never ever tried to do that. You know, there was never a, one moment where we went out as White Snake. You know, it was a M3 playing White Snake, but that even to me confused the issue even more. So that's why I kind of, after a while, I thought, you know, enough is enough. Company Snakes was different because Company Snakes we, were doing, we did a really decent original album, which obviously you have. And I think if we'd have followed that up a little bit more, uh, that there could have been a bit of a route there. But uh, every time we played a White Snake song, you know, the volume went up fifty percent or even more, and it was like, well, give the people what they want, you know. So that was why that yeah. came to an end,
0: and that's why. Uh I always tell folks it's a brand over a band because you put White Snake yeah. on the marquee and yeah. it almost doesn't matter who the play now to fans it does maybe like a diehard like myself but to others it's like you see White Snake you go okay it's White tonight uh okay so let me we we opened up a band a bunch of avenues there so so let me ask you first of all uh after uh, leaving Whitesnake, you did do a, a variety of projects as we just mentioned um talk to me about that was that a a a time of just not finding your way were these projects just meant to be projects and not bands was it just financially difficult to make them viable was sort of where and i say this respectfully but what what was sort of the merry-go-round that was going on there was it was it just hard to find your place or was it like no 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 this this is one album now we're done now i'm gonna go do something was it creative or ha, talk to me about all these different projects.
1: <laughs> uh, you know the, the stock answer to that, which is, is all of the above. Really, I I call the first year everything is like a rebound project. You know, I was kind of the the, the shock of the end of White Snake after Saints and Sinners for me didn't kick in really until about six months later, because suddenly they were on the road again, and it was like, well, hang on, what? It's like, why am I not there? You know, because they were still doing the same set, for one thing. And they had Colin Hodgkinson on bass. And Colin is one of the greatest players ever. But not really for Whitesnake. Cozy Powell's playing drums. One of my greatest friends. He's the best man at my wedding. We worked together in, the, you know, in 74. Suddenly, one of my best friends is in the band that I used to be in. And he springs me up three or four months in and says, I don't know why I'm in this band. I should never be in it. You know, I could have said that at the time, but I never did. And as we know, it didn't last very long. And so breaking up the original band still to me doesn't make any sense. You know, when you have John Lord, Ian Pace and the rest of us ready to roll. But the financial side of it was so poor and the way the management and I use the management in italics and, you know, was so one sided uh, david didn't really have a great deal of choice the only way he could get out of the whole thing was by breaking up the band unfortunately breaking up the band meant the end of my tenure with it uh neil went back mickey went back not for very long because then john Sykes replaced him pretty quickly and i thought that the cozy pal neil murray john sykes like white snake lineup was very viable excuse the pun with steve Vai, um but um you know, Steve. I'm, I've seen Steve on a few occasions since the time when he was part of White Snake. You know, and he'll look at me and just go, "Well, I was just in the band, really." You know, I mean, White Snake in America, in Canada, a lot of people think know that I'm a songwriter. They don't really, maybe for many years, didn't realize I was in the band for five years or whatever it was. You know, did five six albums. You know, and that's fair enough because if they don't see your name on a poster or at a gig, but in Europe with the original lineup, you know, I still get. Finally, David Coverdale clears up what kind of
0: music White Snake makes. Talk rock. I'm sorry, what? Talk rock? Talk rock. Oh, cock rock. Right. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. It's uh,
1: good therapy, good release for people.